So let's turn together then to 1 John chapter 5. And we are almost, I suppose, at the end of our study. It's just conjecture really how many more weeks we have in it. But nevertheless, we'll seek to get as much as we can out of these remaining verses. And we're looking at the first six verses of chapter 5 this evening under the title, The Features of Effectual Faith. The Features of of effectual faith. And this is our 14th study in this little book. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not grievous, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, if you have been following this study with us every Monday evening over the last while, you will have noted that right throughout this little book of five chapters are three interwoven threads. They are the tests, the proofs, the evidence of spiritual eternal life. Or to put it another way, they are the tests of how we can have assurance that we indeed are the children of God, or as John often puts it, are born of God. And so this is a little epistle chiefly related to the issue of fellowship. How we can know we're in fellowship with God, i.e. how we know that we are born of God, the children of God, and how we can have assurance of that fact. And of course, the three tests, those three threads, are one, the doctrinal test, and two, the social test, and three, the moral test. The doctrinal test being that we believe what the scriptures teach and what history records regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. The social test being that we love our brethren and that others, even in the world, look upon us in the church and see the love that we have one toward the other and see a witness of the very agape love of God in God's temple today, the church. And then the moral test, which simply is obedience, that we obey God's commandments and we're walking in his precepts and principles. Now what John does for us as he's effectually coming to the conclusion of this little book is he blends these three thread themes together. Truth, love, and righteousness. In order to conclude this great message on assurance, just in case we didn't get the point already, he wants us to realize that these are the three deaths, the three proofs of whether or not we are born of God. Now, that being the case, however, he introduces a new term to us right at the very 
last chapter of the book, which he has not used previously in this epistle or indeed uh, anywhere in his gospel narrative, or at least he never uses the noun until now. He uses the verb form in the gospel and in this epistle, that is the verb believe. But here we find he uses the noun, pistis in Greek, which is the word faith. Who is he, verse 5, that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And verse 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 4, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. There is a noun. Now, although this is a new introduction for us tonight, this thought is inextricably linked with all that has gone before. But now what he's doing for us is he is reinforcing the true nature of Christian faith. This is the Christian faith he is saying to us. And here are the evidences of that particular life in the believer. So what John is doing for us now is He's using this term faith inclusively and exclusively. What do I mean? Well, simply, he is wanting us to be sure of those who are in the faith, inclusive, and those who are outside the faith. Remembering that there were those who were doubting in this assembly, just as there may be those in this assembly that we're speaking to tonight, and indeed right across our world, whether or not they are in the faith. And so he wants us to be sure of how we can know the sheep that are in the fold, as opposed to the sheep that are still lost and outside the fold, and those who are trying to climb up some other way into the fold. And so he's bringing to us the truth, of what the Christian faith is. What it is to be saved, and of course, what it is to be lost. What it is to know that you have eternal life, and what it is to doubt and effectively not have it because of that doubt. And here is the evidence, he says to us, that you can know that you have effectually believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the three same, the doctrinal, the moral, and the social test. Now let me say that this introduction of this word pistis, faith, is very instructive for us in our postmodern and post-Christian era. Because much thinking today in our world, and sadly to say also in the church, has been intoxicated by a philosophy which is called relativism. You may have heard that expression, but perhaps not understood what it means. Donald T. Kaufman in his Dictionary of Religious Terms defines relativism thus, I quote, It is the point of view that since anything must be described in terms of something else and measured accordingly, everything is relative. Let me repeat that. The point of view that since anything must be described in terms of something else and measured accordingly, everything is relative. And reality must be considered, he goes on to say, in subjective terms. In the religious field, this may produce moral nihilism, which means no morality at all, and spiritual confusion. Whereas the Christian, counter-distinction, acknowledges temporal relativity, that there is relativity in the things of time, but trusts in an eternal God who is the source of absolute standards and values. 
Now, maybe that's confused you. Let me illustrate it to you like this. The Christian ought to say today at least that homosexuality is wrong. Why? Because God has established the absolute standard that sexual union is to be celebrated in the marriage bond between one man and one woman. And any other sexual activity outside of that, including homosexuality and various other heterosexual acts, is prohibited. God has given us an absolute standard. But the world says, no, 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 that's not the case at all. Values are not absolute. Values are related to other factors in life. And those factors can change, and therefore our values are subsequently change also. I.e., for instance, society's opinion has shifted seismically regarding this issue of homosexuality, and therefore they conclude in a relativistic way that because it's acceptable to the majority of people in our land, therefore it must be all right. That is relativistic morality. It must be all right because it has become acceptable. Now, that idea of relativism has manifested itself in the church. Chiefly, I would say, in the ecumenical pragmatism that we see, uh, we see operating all around us. What is ecumenism? Well, it is a uniting together, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself. But unbiblical ecumenism ignores fundamental differences that there are in doctrine and belief. And they fellowship on common ground. So it doesn't matter that you differ with another fundamentally on certain intrinsic issues. As long as you have certain common ground, you should be able to fellowship on it. Now there is, I believe, a biblical ecumenism which unites on fundamental doctrine, even though in spite of some minor divergence of opinion. Let me illustrate this to you. On Saturday past, I received an invitation to announce to the church here the Women's World Day of Prayer. And I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was it was taking place in our vicinity in East Belfast Methodist Mission. And it was said to be in the literature a day when Christian, in inverted commas, women over all the world united to pray. It's happening this Friday the 3rd of March. Now that sounds great, and we should always encourage one another and Christians everywhere to pray, and you know that I would be behind that. And then I read the literature a little bit further and found out that all Christian traditions were taking part. That's not necessarily a bad thing, until you read that included within those traditions was the Roman Catholic tradition and the Orthodox traditions in its various spectrum of expression. And indeed, apparently, it was given in definition that the reason why it's being held on this Friday, the 3rd of March, was to accommodate those in the Orthodox Church. Now you say, what is the problem with that? Well, the attitude is the fact that many apostate Protestant churches, I'm sure, were getting involved in it. So it's not a sectarian view, just chiefly towards Roman Catholicism and the like. But these churches... They deny the fundamental doctrine of the justification by faith alone of the believer. That is, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. They deny the very means whereby we come to God. So how can we come together to God on different grounds? So we have to therefore ask the question, what 
is this faith then that, that we ought to be united in? Well, it certainly is not the relativism of our society or of ecumenical pragmatism. Sadly, this relativistic philosophy and practice has contaminated much thought and faith in the church to the extent that what you believe doesn't matter as much as how you believe what you believe. How sincere you are, how compassionate you are in holding and sharing your faith. And some would accuse me of being unloving and being uncompassionate in what I've just expressed. And saying that those who don't believe in justification by faith cannot be classed as Christian. That's terribly intolerant, especially in our modern age. But the fact of the matter is, if anyone levels a, a, an unloving and uncompassionate uh, trait to me on that ground, it is to the contrary, because John actually teaches us that he marries, and the Holy Spirit has married, truth and the exclusivity of that truth with agape love. The two go together. And John is not the only one that does this. Paul does it frequently. In Ephesians 1 and, uh, Ephesians 1 and verse 15, Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Faith and love. He does the same in Colossians 1. 3 and 4. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. The same, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus in the sight of God and of our Father. And Paul's not on his own, along with John. But Peter joins in as well in 1 Peter 1.8. Whom having not seen, that is faith, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It is wrong to say that if you have a doctrinal belief that is fundamental and uncompromising, that in some way it's uncompassionate. The contrary is the truth. The exclusivity of truth can only abide with agape love. God's love will not abide with error. Now John's stress is laid on the object of our faith rather than as our society and the church at large stresses the subjective experience of believing how you believe, sincerely or compassionately. No, John wants us to see that the fundamental issue is the object of our faith, what we believe in, who we believe in, the body of belief. John is telling us it's not an optional extra somewhere down the pecking order after some esoteric experience that we have. I've known God, I've had this experience, that experience. It doesn't really matter the intricate details of who I believe in. John says, no, it means everything. It means your salvation. And so what is this faith that we ought to believe in? The features of a factual faith. Well, here's the first thing he shares with us in both verse 1 and verse 5. A true Christian believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and is the Son of God. Verse 1, a true Christian believes that Jesus Christ is born of God. And verse 5, a true Christian believes 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So John is again reminding us, if we needed it, that authentic Christian faith is based on something that is fixed, something that is constant, the evidence of the testimony of the life and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not some intellectual exercise practiced by the highly intelligent. It is not some kind of emotional experience that is limited to the charismatically initiated and the privileged few. It's not an abstract idea of philosophy. It is not a theological or, 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 or a theoretical concept in and of itself. John's telling us it is an historical fact. This faith is the belief that Jesus is begotten of God and is the Son of God. It is irreducible in its content. It has not, cannot, and ought never to be changed. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, listen to me. That is not an article of faith. That is our faith. Start and finish. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, throughout his first epistle, John has been expounding what this means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He tells us, first of all, in chapter 1 and verse 1 to 3, that to believe in Christ is to believe in his deity. The Word of God was manifested. We saw it and bear witness and show unto you that life that eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So you've got to believe that this Christ was divine. You see, the heretics that were uh, uh, sowing the seeds of their false doctrine in the church of Ephesus and others, the, the forerunners to the Gnostics were teaching that the man Jesus was different than the Christ spirit that came upon him, a bit like the cults today and false religions. But you've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he is the Son of God. Jesus, the man, the Son of God as well. To believe in the Christ is to believe in the power of his death to cleanse from all sin. Chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Do you believe that? That his atonement is enough. The Unitarians do not believe it. Liberal Protestants do not believe it. Roman Catholics do not believe it. You must believe it. And it is that blood alone that will avert uh, the righteous wrath and anger of God. Chapter 2 and verse 2. That alone will be the propitiation for our sins. That alone will appease God as a worthy and righteous sacrifice for our sins. And you've got to believe that God has expressed his love. Not his anger, just but his love. And on the cross and through the death of our Lord Jesus in his atonement. Chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. That we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is the cross literally the crux of your faith, for if it is not, it is not the Christian 
faith. You've got to believe in Christ by believing that this eternal life is experienced only by faith in him. And that faith is a product of the grace of God. We'll see it in subsequent weeks. Verse 11 of chapter 5 and verse 12. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It is faith. By grace, saved through faith. And my friend, maybe you think that the statement is a bit naked, that our faith is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Some might say you could drive a, a horse and cart through that statement. No, you can't. Jesus the man is the Christ, but he is begotten of God as the only Son of God, co-equal to the Father as the Son. In the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one essence. That is the God that is revealed in the Scriptures. That is the Savior that was sent to this world. And if you reject him in any of those attributes, you've rejected the faith. Plummer, the commentator, put it well when he said it is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It is to believe that the one who was known as a man fulfilled a known and divine commission, that he was born and was crucified, is the anointed, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. To believe this is to accept both the Old and the New Testaments. It is to believe that Jesus is what he claimed to be, one who is equal with the Father and as such demands of every believer the absolute surrender of self to him. A true Christian exhibits the faith, here's the doctrinal text, in the belief that Jesus Christ is the only begotten of God and the Son of God. But then secondly, this faith is manifest in verse 1 and verse 4 because a true Christian is born again. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, verse 1, is born of God. Verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Now the tenses are very important and they don't come out in the English language. So uh, just bear with me. If you look at verse 1, it says, whosoever believes, or he who believes, that is the present tense, has been born of God. That is the perfect past tense. So let me define it like this. He who is presently believing in Christ in the way that we have defined in verse 1 and 5 has been in the past born of God and it's affected in our present. So something that happened in the past in your life, your new birth, has affected your belief in Jesus today as the only begotten Son of God. You see it? One commentator put it like this, our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain the children of God. In other words, God took the initiative in our salvation and in the new birth. You see, faith is a gift of God, and it's not only God's gift to us, as 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. But it is, as John is pointing out, the first active sign that there is life in us. Faith. But that faith presently in us is a sign of the new birth that happened in our past. Do you realize this? And I, I feel, and I know I'm on somewhat controversial ground, that at times the controversy of the matter robs us of the beauty and the wonder of this particular doctrine. It's outlined for us in Ephesians 2, if you turn with me to it, showing how God took the initiative in our salvation. First of all, in verse 1 to 3, Paul outlines how we as human beings are unable to save ourselves. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our way of life in times past, and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath as others. But God, God is the prime mover, who is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Just in case we miss the point, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And then in verse 8, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now we must say categorically, on the authority of God's word, this passage and right throughout the whole New Testament and old, that salvation is a work of God. From start to finish, it is of God. And even in our individual salvation, we must come to terms with the fact that personally God instigated the first move in our individual experience. Now, let me say that we do not believe, as I've repeated often, the Scottish theologian who said, in any form of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. And therein is the great mystery that I have never solved, nor will. But yet we cannot deny the reality of what John is telling us and what Paul tells us in Ephesians. And that is God instigates the new birth in our life that brings within us that faith that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. You might say, well, why do you have to emphasize that point this evening? It is somewhat controversial to believe that we must be quickened in order to believe in who Christ is and what he has done, so on and so forth. But it has great, manifest, uh, great ramifications on our contemporary society and how we apply these scriptures and how we apply the gospel. What do I mean? Well, we're living in a godless culture, just as Paul and, and John did in their day. And in a godless culture, there's a great tendency that we stoop to all sorts of levels to communicate the gospel to those around us who are lost. And what this truth teaches us, that it is a new birth, that brings spiritual life to men and women, is that we are not relying on our own human ability to bring people to the Savior. 
We preach the word. And we do it faithfully. And we do it reasonably and rationally and passionately. But it is not for us alone to convince and to convert men and women. The danger is in this day when the gospel is lambasted and totally rejected. That the acceptability of our message to the masses becomes something that is so important that we divest it of this supernatural element wherein it is a work of God. It's not just a decision of man. And in our age we need to realize that our sufficiency is of God in this issue of salvation and in the issue of the ministry of the gospel. And if that is a negative point to make that we don't in any way pander to the lack of acceptability that our message may have to a postmodern, post-Christian age, there is a positive aspect to it, and it's simply this. That's if salvation is of God, God can still do it today the way he ever has done. Now we need to beware, of course, for many have gone into an exclusive camp and corner whereby they've used this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation as a pillow to lie their head upon and they've gone to sleep evangelistically and somehow believe that we don't need to preach the gospel when the fact of the matter is that we use the instrument of the gospel that God has ordained to bring to him those that should be saved. And this is the truth that I want you to grasp. That whatever the winds of change might be that are blowing in our society, the wind blows where he wills. And we hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence he comes or where he goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That ought to give us courage to preach the gospel, knowing that it is a work of God. And God can still work it today. But secondly, and this is the emphasis that I want to bring you more heavily tonight. This fact that God is the one who brings the new birth to bear upon men and women ought to implore us to implore God to do it over again and again and again. Do we call and cry and agonize and groan and weep and mourn that God may move in new birth in the lives of our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and our land. Do we wait upon God, you preachers? I don't care whether you're Calvinistic or Arminian. That is irrelevant to what I'm saying. Do we wait upon God for the divine power that is necessary for preaching God's word? This is a work of God. I rebuke my own heart. Just as God brought light into the world by a word, he brings new life through the word of his power. 
That is why we preach the word. It is the instrument of salvation, Romans 10 and 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. There is an executive, regenerative authority in the very word of God. But it must come effectually to man's heart. Like Jesus, the Son of God, stood that day and shouted into the tomb that was stinking of Lazarus' flesh. Lazarus, come forth! Could a dead man hear? He was made to hear by the power of God that was in the voice of the incarnate Son of God. Now don't you start pigeonholing me. You can do it if you want. And asking me at the door, are you this, that and the other? Because I'm not going to tell you. You should be uh, awake enough to know. But the fact of the matter is, this is what I want you to hear, friends. Salvation is of God. And if it's of God, that means that it's not all about us. It's about God. And it's about us imploring God to move in his spirit in the lives of individuals. Do we do that? Jesus said in John 5, 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. People say to me, you're contradicting yourself, or that doctrine contradicts another one. Well, did Jesus contradict himself here? The hour is coming now when the dead shall hear. How can the dead hear? The dead hear, as Charles Wesley says, when he speaks, and listening to his voice, the dead new life receive. That's what we need today. A true Christian is born again. Are you born again? No, Asni, did you put a hand up in some meeting or did you pray a prayer or sign a card? Or, I don't know what it was, but I'm asking you. Are you born from above? Is the life of God in your soul? A true Christian believes that Jesus is begotten of God and the Son of God. A true Christian is born again. These are the features of effectual faith. And then thirdly, a true Christian loves the Father and his family. Verse 2 by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. A true Christian loves his father. When we love God, sorry, I should have read as well the end of verse 1. And everyone that loveth him loveth the father that begot, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now the translation puts it like this. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. <clears throat> you see, the spirit-given faith that comes from God in the new birth, has life with it. And that life will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said in Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. The faith of God that saves is always saving faith alone. But that 
faith which saves is never alone. It has fruit with it. And one of the fruit is love. Now, you know, when a baby's born, it doesn't take place in isolation. And no baby is unique and unrelated in its characteristics from its family. It's born from a family, it's born into a family, and it has relatives, and it will show features of those relatives, good as well as bad. And what John is saying to us is this. If the life of God is in you, you will love your father, and you will love his family. And a love without faith, as we've already said, is not the faith of the gospel. To say just love everybody and deny the truths of the word of God, that's not love and it's not the gospel. But equally so, faith without love is not the faith of the gospel either. Faith without love is not a feature of a factual faith. Faith that does not lead to love is meaningless. And love that is not based on faith is powerless. The scriptures testify, and I stand to be corrected, that when there is unity in truth, the next two letters of John 2 and 3 are all about that. When you get the fundamental doctrines of the faith correct, and you unite together with brothers and sisters in the fellowship, God has a tendency to bless such a unity. That's when revival comes. You might like what you're hearing. Never stopped in the past. The fact of the matter is, when revival comes, denominational differences often pale into insignificance. You can sit there and you can say, I believe in the brotherhood. I believe that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You might go further and say, I believe that there shouldn't be denominations and it should just be the church of God here and there and everywhere. But I'm asking you, in the light of what John has said, is it only your certain type of Christian that you love? I mean, the one that's like you, the particular type and mold that you're in. That could be denominational. Presbyterian, Reformed, Church of Ireland, Methodist, uh, Baptist, Brethren, Independent, you name it. Go on and on. And it's them. Remember, you don't hate everybody else, but you just love them a wee bit more. Could be class distinction. Upper class, and you look down on those who are the working class. You could be a working class in trade union blood, and you look down on those who are above you. All sorts of divides, doctrinal divides, whilst we cherish doctrine and never ought to dilute it. You could be a Calvinist or an Arminian, and that matters to you so much, or a premillennialist. That you won't have millennials or post-millennials about you when they're the children of God. You see, what John is trying to get us to realize is membership in God's family isn't limited to anything other than a confession that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And therefore, if membership to the family is on that grounds and that grounds alone, fellowship in the family should be on that grounds and that grounds alone. That's God's word. You can add whatever doctrines and little rules and regulations on top of that you like, but that's God's word. I'm not saying these other things aren't important. Uh, Of course they are. But they should never limit our brotherly love. That's what John is saying. It's ironic to me that often those 
who shout the loudest about the deficiencies of denominationalism and certain denominations are often the most exclusive in their sectarianism. A true Christian loves the father and his family. And then fourthly and finally, a true Christian not only believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and is the Son of God, a true Christian is not only born again, and a true Christian not only loves the Father and his family, but firstly tells us a true Christian is obedient to God's commands. Verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. Now, Right away we realize that there's two different worldviews here in our, in our world. There is the view of the unregenerate and there's the view of the child of God. And it, it would be obvious, and we'd be surprised otherwise, if, if the unregenerate didn't see God's commandments as grievous or burdensome. And sometimes you hear about that. Oh, you Christians, all you talk about is do's and don'ts and rules, regulations. Why would I want to be a Christian? And they perceive themselves to be free, to be at, at liberty, doing what they want, even in the face of a holy God. And they see God's commandments as restrictive. They are burdensome. They're an irritation, positively irksome. Why would I ever want to be a Christian? But I wonder, do at times we think that way about God's commands? And I'll be honest, secretly sometimes, to pray to read the word, to study, to get the breaking of bread, to love your neighbor, to ye not yield to temptation, so on and so forth. It's not always easy. It can be a very big burden. So what is this meaning? Because God's word clearly says that God's commandments are not burdensome and not grievous. Well, I think there's a twofold meaning here. You remember the Lord Jesus was speaking in the Gospels uh, to the backdrop and context of Phariseeism. And he said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Contrasting it to the Pharisaic approach of adding 600 or so rules and regulations to the grace of God. Matthew uh, uh, 23 gives us an insight. They bind heavy burdens, Jesus said of the Pharisees, and grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So what God's word is saying uh, through John is that God's commands are not like that. They're not burdensome like legalistic Phariseeism. And if you've got legalistic Phariseeism, you haven't got the faith of God. If your Christianity exists of just rules and regulations and do's and don'ts, what somebody looks like, how they measure up to your standards, that's not Christianity. I'm not saying there aren't rules. I'm not saying there aren't principles. I'm not saying there aren't standards. But if that's all you have, you haven't got the faith. But secondly, I think what John is getting at is also the sense that when we love the Lord, his commands are not burdensome. Like the Lord himself said, I delight 
to do thy will, O God. You might say, retort, well then why at times are they grievous and burdensome? Because we don't love the Lord the way we ought. And oh, it is our chief complaint that our love is weak and faint. We need to love him more. We need to get nearer to him. He said in John 14, 15, If ye love me, ye will keep my commandments. One has said the commandments of God become burdensome only when we desire to do something else. In that case, love for our own will dominates our love for God. And fellowship is broken. And what is intended for our good seems cruel and restrictive. The solution is to return to that position in which we love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. Where's your love tonight? Could that be a reflection on your lack of obedience? Do you remember when you were first in love with your wife? need to have long memories, some of you. You used to open the car door and guide her into the passenger seat and everything. But now, as the saying goes, if you open the car door, it's either a new car or a new wife. The fact of the matter is, when love grows cold, obedience grows cold. Do you remember Jacob laboring for Rachel and Laban said, labor seven years, serve me for seven years. And Genesis 29, 20 says that those seven years seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had to her. That's what our obedience is meant to be. That God's commands are not grievous, are not burdens. Of course, there's times they will be. But it's all because our faith has grown weak and our love has grown cold. And when a mother takes a baby into her arms and you tell her to look after that child, you're only telling that mother what she loves to do anyway. She loves the child. She's going to look after the child. The wee girl carrying her, her baby brother and somebody said to her, is he not a bit heavy for you, dear? And she says, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. You know the saying. She loved him. So to carry that burden was not grievous. It was not irksome. It was not uncomfortable. It was not inconvenient. It was as burdensome as wings are to a bird. For eventually those burdens take off. And take you higher to glory near the Savior. A true Christian is obedient to God's commands. Now all these are interconnected. Faith, love, holiness. And I want you to see this. It's like the spokes of a wheel. They're all worth nothing on their own. If one of them breaks, the other two are useless. And my friend, you need to see this. You can have all the doctrine and be able to expound it and pontificate and prove it. But if you don't have love, if you don't have holiness, it means nothing. And man, it could mean you're not even converted. That's the seriousness of this portion. Or maybe it's love that you have, but you don't have this doctrine of belief and the fundamental gospel by grace through faith. You're not saved. Or maybe it's you've got the love and you've got the faith, but you haven't got the morality. 
Your life is filled with sin and iniquity and habitual lifestyle that John condemns. It proves that if you're habitually living in such a trend, you're not a child of God. Now that's God's word. You've got to have the three. You say, that's a high price you're asking. That's salvation, my friend. And if it's a gift of God, it's not for the asking. It's been purchased through the cross at Calvary. It's yours if you'll believe it and embrace it. Do you have it? Martin Lloyd-Jones used to have a pastoral fraternal in London. And the story goes that on one occasion a very accomplished speaker came to address those ministers and pastors and he expounded the reformed doctrines of grace, Calvinism effectively. And it transpired that months later, after his, his very great exposition, he, he was exposed as having been living in sin at the time that he gave the address. This was a great scandal, and the next time the fraternal met, there was a man who quizzed Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this very issue and asked him how it could be justified, and so on and so forth, and how this man could have such a grasp of certain doctrines, whether you agree with them or not, is immaterial, and yet he was living presently in habitual, continual sin. And this is what the great doctor said, and it will be worth adhering to for all of us. He said, give me a holy Arminian any day over an unholy Calvinist. Give me a holy Arminian any day over an unholy Calvinist. Which are you? It doesn't matter to me whether you're Arminian or Calvinist. Are you holy? You can have the doctrine. You can even have the love. But have you got the life? I left one out. Fifthly, a true Christian will overcome the world by faith. Verse 5, verse 4, I beg your pardon. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. You hear a lot about victorious Christian living today, but you see very little of it. Many Christians, if they're honest, they're living defeated lives. They're asking the question, is it possible to overcome the world? This phrase, overcometh the world, overcometh, is in the aorist tense, has overcome, literally. It indicates a victory which has been achieved in the past, once for all, the effects of which we're still living with today. What's it talking about? Calvary! Is it possible to overcome the world? Yes, it has been overcome. He has kneeled it to his cross and your flesh and the devil. I know you're maybe not living in the victory of it. But your faith, the true effectual faith of God rests four square on the fact that Jesus has defeated death and anybody who can defeat death can defeat anything. You can't fight the world and overcome it. It doesn't come through organizations. It doesn't through, come through government. It doesn't come through politics. It doesn't come even through reformation. 
He that overcomes the world must overcome it by faith. Faith gives the victory. Why? Because it it joins us to Christ who has won the victory at the cross over the world, the flesh and the devil. We become united with him by faith and therein overcoming the world. You defeated tonight. You need to ask yourself, are you a Christian? That's the first thing you need to do. I'm not going to tell you if you've called upon the name of the Lord, you're saved and you're living like a reprobate. That's not the gospel. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, but they have not done the will of my Father in heaven. But Maybe you are a believer and you just haven't got to the stage of appropriating what is yours in Christ. It's by faith. It's not by working it up or stirring it up or waiting or doing this, that and the other. It's by faith embracing it. Not just saying what God says is true, but acting on what God says because it is true. The story is told of an American Civil War veteran who used to wander from place to place. He was a tramp and he would beg and he hadn't even a bed to lie in at night and rummage in the rubbish for his eats. And no matter where travels took him, he always talked about a friend. Mr. Abraham Lincoln. Nobody ever believed him, of course, that he knew the great president. And because of his serious injuries during the war, he was unable to hold down a job. And for as long as he could, he kept going around. And he would chat as he begged and stole about Abraham Lincoln. One day, one man said to him, you say you know Mr. Lincoln. I'm not sure that you, you did know him. I want you to prove it to me. Now, come on. And so the wee tramp put his hand in his pocket. And he says, I can prove it. In fact, I have a piece of paper here with Mr. Lincoln's signature on it himself. And he gave it to me himself. And out of his pocket, in tattered wallet came a folded piece of paper. And he unfolded it and showed this inquisitive man. And the tramp said, no, I'm not good at reading. But I know that that's Mr. Lincoln's signature And the man with his chin hitting his boot said, Do you know what is here? Mr. Lincoln has personally authorized with his signature a pension for the rest of your life, a federal pension authorized by the president himself. And he looked into that tramp's eyes and he said, Why on earth are you living like a tramp on the streets when Mr. Lincoln has made you rich? I don't know whether people around us in the world doubt our claims. Could it be because we have never appropriated the riches that are ours in Christ? Friends, these are the birthmarks of authentic Christianity. These are the features of effectual faith. And what I want all of you to do here tonight, whoever you are, is to look into the mirror of God's word and ask, do you recognize yourself as one that is born of God? Father, we know that in another place John could say, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, 
Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Lord, we thank you that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And those of us who are saved and sure, may we continue to be more assured through these attributes and features of effectual faith in our lives. But Lord, those that are not sure, may they make sure, making their calling and election sure being sure that they're in the faith, for nothing is more important. Their soul depends on it. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer and thank you for the Lord Jesus who gives us the victory over the world and whose all-victorious name we pray. Amen.